0: And Father, we thank you tonight that you have elected to give us opportunity to sit at your feet and listen to you, and listen to you through your word. So, Father, I pray that we uh, we would devote ourselves to it, that we would have come tonight with an earnest desire to know the truth, and that we would uh, focus on it and trust it, Father. Trust that what we hear is purposeful, and that what we learn is useful, and that you wouldn't provide it to us if it weren't. And that, Father, we would ultimately not make your job more difficult. So to speak, we would, we would teach with an open mind and, and clear thought. We would hear with open ears and uh, a soft heart, and we would be ready to use what you teach us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How do you introduce the Messiah to Israel as the Father speaking? How do you do that? How do you, how do you set them up to understand all that's coming and do it in a way that's compelling enough that, that they don't miss it? Well, that's the job that Isaiah has, or God has, speaking through Isaiah as he moves now into the second part of 2nd Isaiah. And it's it's going to be remarkable, I think you'll agree, as we look through the text tonight, that he does it so clearly, and yet today people look at the Old Testament and not understand they're looking at Christ. So there's a definite mystery in this. It's not for lack of information, though, as I think you'll agree when we look at the text tonight. So if 1st Isaiah was... Old Testament-like, judgment, consequence for sin, etc. And then 2nd Isaiah is somewhat New Testament-like. It's the salvation that comes as a product of mercy and from a Savior, a Messiah, who is front and center and the Father and the Spirit also working to bring that salvation. Well, that's where we are in in the book. We're in the middle of this now. And this itself was divided into three parts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Remember at the very end of last week, I threw out at you why three parts have to be in view if we're talking about salvation and mercy. Why wouldn't the whole second Isaiah just be about the Messiah, who you know we understand is our salvation? And I used the reference back to the way we are told in the Great Commission to baptize. Remember? We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why all three? Well, because... All three are essential to the process of salvation. Here, the election of the saints takes place. The Father determines who will be saved. Remember what Christ said? I have all that the Father has given me, and none that He has given me will I lose. Here, the propitiation, the payment for the penalty of sin is made. And here, the Holy Spirit quickens the heart or brings that saving knowledge of Christ into the heart so that these two take place. The Holy Spirit, if you will, is the catalyst that brings the two together. The sovereign choice of God in us and the saving knowledge of how He saves us in the heart of a human being. That's the thats the process of the Holy Spirit bringing us faith. So we're saved in the name of all three because it takes all three. So studying Isaiah is a great way to assure yourself that the plan never changed. There wasn't an Old Testament plan and then... That didn't work out. So now we have a New Testament plan. It's all the same plan. It's always been the same plan. Remember chapter 48 last week? We finished midway. I said last week that the end of 48 was a nice way to transition into the Messiah part of second Isaiah. This is this here was 40 through 48. This will be 49. And then we'll go on to those later. We're in the last part of 48 tonight. So we're going to jump this line tonight. I love what you're going to see here. You're going to see. Isaiah, speaking about the father still at the very end of 48, suddenly the father does what? He he hands off to the son. Speaking in the first person, he hands off to the son who begins to speak. 48 itself is a summary of 1 through 47, even as you go into chapter 49. Let's go into 48, verse 12. Tonight, as part of this last bit of 48, we're going to find the clearest statement in the entire Old Testament of the existence of the Trinity. 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him. And he will and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Some of these are going to be familiar because they're repetition of what we've heard earlier, because again, chapter forty eight is a summary. So don't be surprised if it sounds familiar. Let's just run through it real quickly. Who's the one speaking here? God, right? For he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who called Israel. There's that sovereignty theme of election showing up again, even at the very end here. I called Israel. He's the one who created the universe. He's the one in verse 14 who has spoken the future to the nations, which means he knows the future and controls it. All of this is something you've heard. In verse 14, when he says the Lord loves him, and he, this him this carries out his good pleasure upon Babylon, who is the him? It's going to be Cyrus. Loving here is a, is a term that could cause you confusion. But I think in the context of the whole book and even just in these verses, what he's referring to is God chose him, God used him, God selected him. He's loved not in the eternal sense necessarily, but in the sense that God has chosen to make him anointed for a purpose. And in that purpose, he's going to carry it out because God's going to make him successful in that purpose. So there's a single voice throughout all these verses. It's always a single person talking, first person voice. But who exactly is speaking? Let's start with who the Jews would have thought. If I brought Rabbi so-and-so in here and I asked him to interpret these verses, who does he say is speaking? God, which I said it's God. That's obvious. It is God. What name would he have used probably? Probably Yahweh. Yahweh would have been speaking, which means Lord God. And in verse 16, you come to the end and the last part of verse 16 And the speaker here is revealed to be someone other than Yahweh, because verse 16 says, Now the Lord God, which is Yahweh in Hebrew, sent me and his spirit. How many people do you see in that last line? You find three. You find three persons mentioned there. And not just because we see them now looking back as father, son, spirit. But even if you didn't know the Trinity going into the verse, just grammar would tell you there's three. The fact that he doesn't call himself Yahweh, he refers to someone else as Yahweh and then separates himself from that that Yahweh and calls himself me, then turns and talks about his spirit, which is another, which is third person. So there's a distinction there of three people. Yahweh, me, his spirit. Well, if me is not Yahweh, then you read backward into the text. What could me be? Me has got to be the same one who said, I have spoken And called him and brought him. I am the one who assembled you. Uh, I am the one who spoke these things to you. It was my right hand that spread out the heavens. What are we saying? What is scripture saying? Who did all those things? Has to be the son. In knowing the Trinity as we understand it now. If you're not the father and you're not the spirit. That only leaves one thing. You are in this case. You have to be Christ speaking. Consider these New Testament verses briefly. Colossians 1. Paul gives a very strong doxology for Christ. Christology, we call it. The strongest statement of Christology in the New Testament is found in Colossians 1. Listen to what he says about Christ in 115. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he is the member of the Trinity, the member of the Godhead, responsible for everything that is physical or created. The Father is all spirit. There's nothing about the Father that ever reaches into a physical domain. That's why he cannot be experienced in any physical way. He must express his nature, character, and his very existence to the creation through his Son, for his Son is the member of the Godhead that has physical expression. He is the Word. So God's very expression of thought or of of concept comes through the second person. He is the creator of all things, whether in heaven or on earth. So the physical representation of God is exclusively expressed through his son. So the son is the member of the Godhead responsible for everything you and I can experience, period. With the only possible exception being, I guess, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The, The fruit of the Spirit is another expression of God. But even in that, it comes through the very existence of a body that must in, be indwelled, which is itself the product of the creation. So even then, you would say the son is responsible for our understanding of a spirit. The father, when he determined to create and to have a physical manifestation of himself through the son, dictated that creation. The son's the word. John says in 1.1, 1, 1, what we all know so well in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. You have here a truth confirmed hundreds of years before Christ was incarnate. Concerning that there was a Trinity. And that the the member of the Trinity responsible for all that we know and understand in creation is Christ. We didn't have to wait for Paul to explain that to us. It was available in, in Isaiah. It's obviously much easier to understand having the New Testament to help. Now, verse 17, going forward here. Now Isaiah is going to transition away from the father and toward the suffering son. So here's the way to think of it. As he leaves 48 and gets ready to walk into 49, you heard Jesus himself talking. And then at 17 through the end of the chapter, the father is going to essentially hand things off to him. And the son becomes the picture or the the point all the way through the midsection of this book, of this last half of the book. So verse 17 Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Summing up the problem. Look at how he sums up the problem. He says, God has led them in the proper way, the way of righteousness, but they didn't follow. How did he lead them? What's probably the easiest way to say he led them? What's the most obvious way in which God tried to lead them into the ways of righteousness? The commandments. The law is the easiest thing to put your finger on to say, here's how God led them through righteousness. I mean, there's a million other ways he tried or expressed the need or whatever, but that's probably the easiest thing to point to. Do you notice that God doesn't say in these verses, though, why they didn't follow him? Why they, I'm sorry, why they didn't follow the way of righteousness or why they couldn't follow the way of righteousness? He doesn't propose a reason behind it. He just says, since you didn't, right? There's no discussion here about the incurable nature of sin, but we know that from other scripture. God is simply stating a fundamental truth, and that fundamental truth is there was a standard for righteousness, which if they could have kept it, would have arrived at good things for them, endless good things. But because they didn't keep to the standard of righteousness, because they didn't follow that, there's going to be consequences. But more than just consequences, there has to be a solution. What I don't want you to do is look at the text and and think to yourself, he's suggesting that was a possible solution. He's not suggesting that the giving of the commandments and their keeping of those commandments was ever intended to be a solution or a means to righteousness. He's not suggesting that. He's simply stating the obvious. When you don't live righteously, then you lose the opportunity for what righteousness would bring. That's where he knew they would end up. That's where every human being ends up. We covered all of that in Romans. The righteousness that they lack is a product of their sin, which is reflected in the law not being kept, and their well-being, he said, could have been like a river never ending or like waves on the sea never ceasing, but it wasn't to be. So that's the fundamental truth of Scripture. What does it mean to keep God's commandments? If you were to look at these texts and say, verse 18, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, and you were to look at that verse and say, yep, Israel, if you had just done the right thing, what does it mean to do that? What would it mean, literally, to pay attention to my commandments? Knowing what we know about what Scripture says on the point. To do it in the full sense would mean what? In action, word, and thought to be perfectly consistent with all that God commands without exception. From birth to death. In theory, anyway, that's what it would mean to pay attention to my commandments. And then, of course, yes, your well-being would be like a river. Meaning endless. God's not suggesting that such an outcome was ever possible. He's just affirming the basic truth of what follows a nation when they are not perfect. Now, the fact that Israel didn't follow this way that God pronounces here has led to consequences because sin always does. As you look at them historically, they've been a nation of people longer or at least as long as any other nation or culture you can name that still exists today. Name any culture, name any distinct group of people in the world today, and you have a hard time finding any group that can trace its existence back further in human history than the Jewish nation. And yet, by most accounts, there's only about 14 million Jews in the world today. Just simple mathematics would tell you that you have people who live for that many eons and millennia, you know, then they should have by now reproduced to the point of hundreds of millions of people. Just sheer math, right? Even accounting for disease and wars and so on. There is something else going on there. And I know, yeah, Hitler did his part and there's been historic you know, opportunities for Jews to be persecuted. But none of that can explain it mathematically if you, if you look at the numbers. It is clear that God has, through his supernatural sovereign power, kept them a hair's breadth from extinction for a long, long time, but never let them extinguish. That is an, a kind of confirmation in reverse of what he says in this text. Because he says, if you had been a righteous nation, he says then your descendants would have been like sand. The implication is they're not because of your sinful nature. Now, is he singling them out? Is he suggesting that other people on the earth are numerous because they're keeping his commandments? No, he's using them as an example in the negative. He has purposely kept them very small as a point to be made that there is consequence for sin. He's not saying they're the only nation with sin. He's saying they're just the only nation he chose to make an example of because they're his nation. And another way to look at it is, everyone else will have consequences too. He's just not making them a public witness like he is out of Israel. He's taken Israel over the centuries and said, I'm going to keep you under my control all the way through even your times of judgment as a point to make to the world that when you have sinned, you have consequences. And he speaks it to them here. So, God's indicating that their disobedience under the law is the reason for their historical place of misery and weakness in the world. But he does say that will be turned. There was a picture of this in the Ruth study, wasn't there? If Naomi and her husband Elimelech represent the nation of Israel, set out of the land during a time of famine, they die and get weak and and see their numbers dwindle when they're outside their land. That's the time we live in for Israel today. But there's eventually a return into the land, and that's what we see taking place today. So God is moving his plan forward for Israel, and Isaiah declares in advance, he says at the end of 20, 21 and 22, he says... It's going to be time at some point to flee Babylon. And isn't this interesting? Isaiah is writing this over a hundred years before Babylon ever comes and takes anyone captive. He's already talking about to the nation, when you're taken captive, there'll be a future time you're going to hear it's time to leave. Be sure to do that. When you do, declare that the Lord has done this for you. And then he talks about them getting water in the desert. What did you think that was a reference to at first? Reminds you of, of the Exodus, right? But it's not it's speaking of their time leaving Babylon. Now, there's no record of this event of gushing water out of rocks in the two books that cover the, the return, which would have been Ezra and Nehemiah. But maybe this is the one reference. This must be the one time it's mentioned in Scripture. We just don't have anywhere else that it's mentioned. But it is similar to Exodus. And if we take that to be purposeful, then you might look at the two and try to draw a picture. If the Exodus from Egypt was a picture of God setting his people free from bondage and slavery. Well, it's similar in this case as well, right? Under bondage and slavery to Babylon, he sets them free again. So maybe that picture is intentional. Last verse is a marker in the text. He says, in contrast to how God is going to care for his people and let them out of Babylon one day, nonetheless, the wicked never find that peace. That's our clue. The section's in it. So part two of 2nd Isaiah, the suffering servant. Now, we know we're talking about the Messiah. We know about his suffering here refers to the time he spends on the cross So, what does that tell you about the entire section with respect to its point in history? Isaiah wrote in the case of the first section, some things were near term prophecies, some terms were far term prophecies. We've seen that pattern a lot in first Isaiah. But now in this section, if the whole thing's about the suffering servant, then the whole set of prophecy is with regard to what? It's not near term to Isaiah, it's hundreds and hundreds of years away from Isaiah, but it's not, of course, going all the way to the millennial in most cases but it's definitely kind of mid to far term. The whole section is looking way in the distance from the time he wrote it. The point of the section then is how the Lord will accomplish the pardoning that he promised he would give Israel back in this earlier section. So at several points in the first section, he said, I'm going to pardon Israel. This is how. So section two is about the how. The organization of it is very easy. 49 is the call of the servant, the commissioning or the the mission of the servant. What is, there, what is the servant being called for? That's chapter 49. That's what we look at tonight. Chapters 50 and 51 is a, a look at all the suffering that servant will have to do. This is where we're going to see a lot of detail about the kind of death he would have come upon him and how it would take place. And again, the prophecies are so specific, it's eerie how you couldn't look at them and just know that that was talking about Christ now. And then 52 through 53... And onward is the death of the servant. So the call, the suffering, and the death of the servant. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Israel in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So notice as we begin part two, That someone is speaking here in the first person, and it's the same person who was speaking in the first person at the end of chapter 48. So that transition we saw in the middle of 48, where there's a first person speaker who's member of the Godhead continues all the way into this chapter. And the Messiah here speaks of his own situation. And if you notice, he speaks about his situation with a bit of discouragement. Uh, Like in verse four, of course, he says, I've toiled in vain. Look at that here in a second. Look at the details, though, and consider again, these are written hundreds of years before Christ came. He will come from a womb. So he's born of a human mother called by his father. Verse one, he was named before he was born while he was in the mother's womb. That's consistent, of course, with what we see in Matthew and Luke. When they say the angels say he will be called Jesus, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel. And Isaiah, of course, says that same thing in 714, way back in the book of Emmanuel, So he's named before he's born. By the way, though the Old Testament often mentions that the coming Messiah would have a mother. Here's an example of that, of course. Do you know the Old Testament never once mentions the Messiah's father? Why would you think that's true? Because he had no earthly father. You would think in a patriarchal culture that the father of the Messiah would be a very honored character, but he's never even mentioned. Looking further, this coming person will have the power to deliver truth and judgment with his words. That's what that sword reference means. It's a picture of of the sword, the right of the sword, the right of judgment in a legal sense, the right to to pronounce judgment. He receives special protection from the father. That's the concealed in the palm of his hand. Christ was certainly protected by the father through his ministry. The crowds couldn't touch him until the time was right. The enemy couldn't hurt him until the time was right. But more than just protected, he's concealed. He's concealed. No one knew the identity of Christ as Messiah unless God revealed that to them. Remember, Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the, the son of God. He says, well, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who's in heaven revealed it to you. That's the sense of concealed until God wants it to be known. He clearly wasn't known to be who he was until after the resurrection by many people. So it's actually a reference to the fact that he would not be widely accepted in his coming. Now, he is a servant. Was there a reference in there that caught your ear? Something that caused you to wonder? Verse three, the father said to the son, you are my servant, Israel. Can anybody catch that and wonder what that was a reference to? Or did you think he was just talking about Israel? If you thought it was Israel, that might make some sense because the name's there, right? What does it mean that Isaiah uses the name Israel here to describe the servant who we know is Christ? Have you ever heard Christ called Israel? It's not common. Look further down the text. Look in, in fact, if you're your, looking in your Bible, look all the way down to verse 14. There you see the, the person speaking here again, referring to himself as Zion. Well, Zion is a word meaning Jerusalem, basically. So here he's referring to himself as Jerusalem, earlier Israel. That's the rabbinical view that says, well, we're just looking at a description of the people Israel. But you can look at the text and dismiss that really easily. Look in verses five and six, for example. This person also says he's the one who will bring Jacob back to God, bring Israel back to God. In verse 6, he says, I'm the one who will raise up Jacob and preserve Israel. How can Israel preserve Israel? How can Jacob bring back Jacob? There's clearly a distinction, and yet he uses those names to describe himself as well. There's a couple of ways you can understand why we would call Jesus Israel or Zion. First, Jesus is a Jew. He's, He's a member of Israel. He is, by birth, if you will, Israelite. He is the perfect Jew. And because he is the perfect Jew, he embodies all that Israel as a nation should be, right? A servant to God, law-keeping, honoring to God, glory to God, a light to the nations. That's what Israel as a nation was supposed to be, although they failed at it miserably. Christ came and he was the poster child of Israel, the perfect embodiment of the nation in his own personal life. So, if anything, he fulfills the name Israel in his life in a way that the people never did as a nation group. In one sense, you could say the Messiah is the truest expression of an Israelite. And then the second is the name Israel. It literally means prince with God. Well, that's exactly the description of Christ. He's prince with God. It's an accurate description of the Messiah. Messiah. Israel, the nation. Think about what those names mean. If I call Jesus Israel, what is God saying about the role Israel was supposed to play in the world? Israel then, as a nation, was called by God. Jesus says, I was called By my father in the womb, I was made to be in this role. God called me to do this job. If you think of it that way, the son was appointed this role by the father. Israel was called by God. They're called to be a blessing to the nations. That's the role Christ plays. They're called to be a light to the nations. That's the role Christ plays. They're called to be um, a servant to God. That's the, the role Christ plays. There's all these things in which God said, this is what I want out of my people, none of which they fulfilled. Christ came and he does it all in his life and fulfills it on their behalf in the person of his life. Perfect, sinless servant of God ruling with him. Ultimately, by the way, God does allow the nation of Israel to, do, to fulfill all those things. What happens in the, in the time of the Messianic Kingdom? They're, they are sinless. They are sinless. They are a servant. They are a light to the nations. They are the chief nation on the earth, and they rule with, with, with Christ from Jerusalem. He finally gets the nation of Israel the way they're supposed to be only after they've been restored in sinlessness. Let's look further in that passage and finish it up. Messiah is discouraged, we're told in verse 4, first half of verse 4. He toiled and worked in vain. How did he toil in vain? So it's a reference to his first coming. I came and ostensibly I failed. Not actually, But in the sense that his message wasn't received by the nation, by the people that he came to save, they didn't receive him. But the second half of the verse clarifies the reward for his work won't be found in that day. It waits for a future day. The reward will come later with God. That prophecy fits perfectly with, on the one hand, his suffering on the cross. That's the first half of the verse, followed by the second half of the verse, which is his ascension to the right hand of God. His ministry was first a coming and a dying, followed by an ascending and then a victory in the throne room. Now he just waits to have his kingdom on earth. He says, I've toiled, I've spent my strength, but my justice is due me with the Lord, my reward with my God. Finally, the passage ends with reference to his ultimate mission, right? Bring Israel back to God, raise up Jacob. And then verse six, he says, if the restoring Israel weren't honor enough, He's also going to grant his son the chance to restore nations beyond Israel, be a light to the nations to reach the Gentiles. You know where John 1 says Christ is described as the light of the world? It's most likely the case that John is referencing this verse. His use of light to describe Christ's ministry probably came out of this reference here that he would be a light to the nations. He was the light of the world. What's the Hebrew word for salvation? Verse 6 so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? Yeshua has an H at the end of the word. Yeshua. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua without the H at the end. It's intentional that you would see the words be very similar. So that my Jesus, as we would say it in English, may reach to the end of the earth. All of this is in the Bible hundreds of years before Christ comes to the to the earth. It's interesting when you talk to someone who had said that Jesus was... Um, I was reading this last night. They dismissed Jesus as someone who simply set about in his life to fulfill prophecy. He was a crackpot. He decided he wanted to be the Messiah. So he set about creating all these circumstances in his life so that he could go about fulfilling all the prophecies. He read what they were. He said, "Okay, I got to go do this if I'm going to be the Messiah. Well, the sheer stupidity of it is that how did he decide who was going to give him birth and where it was going to take place? How did he decide what his name was going to be? How did he decide half of the things that Isaiah is talking about here that he couldn't possibly have controlled? How did he decide he was going to get crucified, not stoned? How did he decide it would take place on the Passover, not the day before, not the day after? How did he do all of the things that were required, never mind the resurrection? I mean, the thoughts of it being contrived or contrivable are ridiculous. This, by the way, is never the foundation of faith. I think that's always a danger for anybody who wants to evangelize out of it. I can't prove someone's Christ out of the scripture In terms of method, in other words, I can't say, look, if I can show you five things he did, that will prove to you he's Christ, right? And then you'll believe. Well, that's not how faith works. Now, that doesn't mean the the scripture isn't the method to bring faith. That's always a good thing. But my point is, it's not going to come because you pile up enough evidence that you kick somebody over the edge. Faith will come in a childlike way, a kind of acceptance before the proof out of a trust, out of a belief that's not explainable in terms of proof. The proof will only help later to make your faith sure, to help you stand firm in it as people might come to challenge it. This is the kind of stuff I would point to to say, look at this, there's no chance that it's not true. So in that last verse, verse 7, you have the entire career of the Messiah. He says, Jesus will be the Redeemer, he will be despised, abhorred by the nations, and a servant to rulers. Alright, which part of his uh, ministry is that? Obvious, right? He did all of that in the first coming. Then it says kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because the Lord is faithful and so on. That's a reference to his uh, coming at the second coming where he is seen as glorious and reigning. It's amazing to me that the disciples didn't understand, at least not fully, that Jesus was the Messiah, that the Messiah had to die and that his death was a part of this larger plan What was their cause, if you could pin it down, for being ignorant of those facts as Jesus walked next to them? The only answer I could come up with is willful ignorance of what was already provided in God's word. Whether they had read it and just not paid attention to it or just never read it. I don't know in their case which one was true. You know, God in his wisdom may have obscured it from them. That's the only answer you'd have, right, for why they can know so much about Jesus in his day and then be so surprised to find out the end of the story in Luke 24 when Jesus comes back resurrected and explains to him from from Moses and the prophets why all had to happen, right? You have to think to yourself, well, they always had Moses and the prophets. The class like this, whether it's this one or another one, is what it takes to understand the Bible. And even then, you're not going to come away with everything, neither did I, right? I mean, the point is, You don't get it reading it like you do the comics. You have to dedicate yourself. Another soapbox thing for me is how people will devote hours and years of their life learning chemistry because they want a job in chemistry, whatever the course was. But they expect to be able to show up for a 20 minute Bible class in some small Sunday school and figure out everything in a day. And they're upset that it's so hard. If it's worth time, it takes time. And that's, I think, what was missed for a lot of people then and now that God says you've been given it all, but you're upset because you didn't understand it like that. Well, if, if human knowledge takes a while, why wouldn't godly knowledge take at least as long and more so? So it is a dedicated effort. And just like the days you sat in chemistry and you said to yourself, why am I in this stupid class? How am I ever going to use this? This seems worthless and boring and I can't wait to get out. Later in your job, you thought, gosh, I wish I'd paid attention in chemistry class because I could have used that knowledge right now. We don't all have that experience, but this is something like that. I think those disciples heard something about Jesus when they were looking in, the, in Isaiah But, you know, they were fidgeting in the pews like we all did or whatever the the situation was. And they were ready to go out and play. But a serious dedication to the purpose is inherently necessary if we're going to come away with anything valuable. And then I think it, it falls back to God to show us why it was so important to know it. My trust is that if I dedicate myself to learning it, he'll show me why it was so important to know it. I don't need the answer to that before I spend the time to learn it. Back into the text. Verse eight, thus says the Lord in a favorable time, I have answered you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves along the roads. They will feed and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from this land of Sanim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. Really, there's no reason, in my opinion, to spend much time on those verses. They are a repeating of the same thing we've seen in Isaiah at points past where the, Isaiah, the ministry of the Messiah will be ultimately to culminate in a time when Israel enjoys this kind of preeminent place on earth. They are the principal nation of the earth. They are not in the time of suffering or persecution any longer. They all know the Lord. He has compassion on them and so on. That's the Messianic kingdom. That's the the fulfillment of what God has promised to the nation. Look at how it begins, though. He says, at the appointed time that the Father sets. At an appointed time that the Father sets. What time is that, do we know? A time, he says, when the Messiah will become salvation for Israel. He will become a covenant, it says, for the people. That's at his second coming. Remember Zechariah 12? When Israel is saved in the last moment of tribulation, because there is a time appointed. That's a critical verse. I've been waiting for this verse to cover this point because it's come up at points in the past and I've sort of put it aside. He says, at the appointed time the Father sets, then the Messiah becomes the salvation for Israel and he becomes in that moment a covenant for the people. What covenant and what people? Which covenant? He becomes the new covenant for who? The people has to be Israel. Is he the new covenant for Israel now? By the statement that Isaiah makes here, the answer to that question has to be no The time appointed for that to happen has not occurred yet. There is a new covenant. Jesus established it in his blood. It is for the nation of Israel ultimately, but it's not for them yet. The appointed time has not come. Look in chapter 31 of Jeremiah where you hear the new covenant. I'm just going to read 31 verses 31 through 34. This is what the new covenant says. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That description tells us what the establishing of the new covenant will look like. When Israel gets the new covenant, which is designed for them, what will be true in that same moment they get it? He says, It won't be like the one I made with their fathers meaning it won't be one they break or can't keep. This one he says, I'm going to put the law on their heart. And he says, they will all know me. They won't need to try to teach each other to follow me or know me because it will already be the case. They'll all know me. So the moment that the new covenant is true in in effect for Israel, the moment it comes into existence for Israel, these things have to be true. There is no way that's that's true now. So Israel has yet to receive the new covenant. It's not yet the appointed time, as God says in Isaiah. It is in a time to come. Now, why is it we can say today that there is a new covenant in existence today? If it's not in existence for Israel today, where is it in existence at all? It has been made available to the Gentiles. In a sense, we have been grafted in, as Paul says, into these promises, even before the root itself has come to accept them. If it were possible in horticulture... You'd be saying that the the branch that is grafted in is living before the root is. But then at some point, the root catches up. That's how God describes, how Paul describes what, what has happened. We are participating in a new covenant that its intended recipients have yet to even participate in. But what that says is, if the intended recipients never participate in it, our covenant couldn't exist apart from that. We would have no salvation if it were the case that Israel never got the new covenant. It's only a temporary thing that God has let us be in his grace without them. So that tells us the inevitability, the necessity that Israel must one day get this covenant that's been promised them. And then Paul says, if their rejection was grace to you, what will their acceptance be? But glory to God, right? It's the final picture and everything is put together. When does this happen? Last piece. When does this happen? He says, when the father appoints. Do you know that this explains something that his Always troubled people out of the New Testament. Difficult verse to understand, but this explains it perfectly. The verse I'm talking about is in Matthew, Matthew 24, 36. Let me read it to you. Christ is telling the disciples about the end times. This is the Olivet Discourse. And in the course of that time, as he's beginning to talk about his own return, his second coming to earth, which they've asked him about, he answers this. He says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And we hear that verse and we think, how can it be that the member of the Godhead doesn't know what the other member of the Godhead has planned and can't tell us when his own return is going to happen? Because it happens in conjunction with the giving of a covenant, which is triggered by the Father's appointed time, the Father's decision for when to elect Israel into that moment of faith is alone the father's decision. This is the role of the Godhead. Again, the father makes the determination of when and the son responds to the call of the nation of Israel, as he says in Isaiah here, he says, you have become, he says, a covenant for the people. So in verse eight, in a favorable time, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you and I will keep you and give you So God and father initiates it. I will give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land in a favorable time. The son literally, as it stands now, knows what must transpire. But the father himself will select the time when it may happen. Verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry, your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride for your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land. Surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants and those who swallow you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved Yet will yet say in your ears, the place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me, since I have been bereaved of my children and am barren, an exile and a wanderer? And who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? Thus says the Lord God: Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons to their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians, and and their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust off your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty men will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Look at the division in this last chapter. The first part was all spoken from whose perspective? Christ, right? Then in the verses I just read, now you're looking at the call. This whole first chapter is the call of the Messiah. Now you're looking at the call of the Messiah, not from his own perspective, but now from the perspective of Israel. So now it's about his call, his purpose, but from the point of view of those who are co- he's coming for. Israel starts in the very part of that first part of that. He says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. This is such a great picture of Israel over the last several centuries, going all the way back to AD 70, really. They would say, even today, for the most part, the Lord forsook Israel. Abandoned us. We, you know, we haven't seen him in a long time or any evidence of him. At least that's their perspective, right? In verses 15 onward, God responds to that thought. He says, can a woman forget her own nursing child? And then he says, even some women may do that, but I'd never do that. I'm not going to forget you as Israel. And then he starts talking about what Israel means to God the Father, or specifically to Christ, which is why Christ will come. He says, I've, you're inscribed on the palms of my hands. You ever heard anybody say that i have written about that, that we are inscribed on the palms of God's hands? Israel is inscribed on the palms of Christ's hands, right? We're grafted into that, but it's Israel, not you and I in that sense. He says, you're... Walls are, be- are continually before me. Arnold Fruchenbaum, who some of you may know him, he writes this anecdote. He says, around the walls of Jerusalem to this day are angelic beings standing upon them. There's cross-reference verses he-, he brings out of the Old Testament to teach that God has said he stations angels on the walls of Jerusalem continually. And so he says when he's in Jerusalem, one of his favorite pastimes is to walk the city wall, which is about two-and-a-half-mile walk. As he walks, he says, I'm consciously aware That on those walls are angelic messengers that, according to Scripture, have only one ministry. They sit on the walls of Jerusalem and they are God's remembrances. Their ministry is to demonstrate that God is continually mindful of Jerusalem and his promises to Jerusalem. That would be what he's he's found in Scripture, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to look at it. He says in the future, Israelites living in Jerusalem are going to say, this city is too cramped for us, meaning there's too many of us. That's actually being fulfilled today. Since 1948, the city's being flooded in with people. So the process of what he's describing here, what he promises to do in remembering them, is already underway, even just in the beginnings of the people coming back into the city. Then he says, they look around and they say, "We've been bereaved of children. We've been decimated over the centuries. we've lost our people." And all of a sudden there's more and more showing up. Where are they all coming from?" the verses said, right? They said that at the, at the end of verse 21, "Where are they all come from? What's his answer? He says, I will lift up my hands to the nations, to the Gentiles, and they will c- carry all of the Jews to you. That's been happening since 1948. The U.S. and other Western countries have made it possible through a variety of means for Jewish refugees to make their way back to Israel from the, behind the Iron Curtain, from other places in the world. And they've done it financially and legally and otherwise. That's a picture, that's a piece of what's taking place here, that God is beginning to return them into the land. And in the end, he says, the nation of Israel will rise victorious. Let's end on this thought. Consider this. This whole section I just read are prophecies regarding how the Messiah will save Israel, right? We know that's the bigger picture of all of this. And it says that the Messiah's restoring of his people and coming back for them begins with their regathering at the hands of Gentile nations. Well, since that regathering has already started, How far away do you think Christ's return can be? These were written hundreds of years before Christ came the first time, and the marker given for his return was this expression of the Jewish people that they're back in their land and the city's kind of cramped, and who's bringing all these people? Oh, the Gentile nations are bringing all these people back to us. As we see those verses, are we living with a full awareness that we may be only a few years or decades away from all of what we've seen in Isaiah taking place, culminating? It's a privilege to be at the very end, I think, to see these things and understand them in that way. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Father, that our hearts and our minds are directed toward the end, that our interest is not a, a morbid curiosity or a, a kind of uh, purposeless game of, of collecting knowledge and trivia. But, Father, I pray that it would have an earnest and sincere uh, weighing on our hearts and our minds, influencing our, every decision we make granting us, Father, an urgency to share what we know and to to live it out. I pray, Father, that would be how we are directed out of this study in all times in the Word. And I do pray, Father, that as we see these things coming to conclusion, that they would come quickly and the Lord would follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.